The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. We do a thing where we kind of introduce some of the texts that are available in the other room there. I don't really know the prices. Nevertheless, we have a uh, series with Davenant called Davenant Retrievals, which are uh, very interesting and exciting. One of the things I loved when I was editor-in-chief of Davenant Press, these are sort of projects that I, I was involved in. Uh, back in the good old days. Back in the good well, before, before the competent guy actually became an editor. Uh, what? Uh, before the Davenant downgrade. That's right. Uh, uh, what, uh, but basically, what was what's been wonderful about the Davenant Network is that uh, a guy like me can say, "Huh, I wonder what book should exist in the world, and what should be inside of that book," and then you can make it almost creation ex nihilo from nothing. It's not quite as impressive as creation ex nihilo, but it's the next best thing. Uh, these books came out of really thinking, what would a good book on Christianity and philosophy look like historically? What would I want it to cover if I wanted a good textbook? Or Protestant ecclesiology. There's not a lot of text on Protestant ecclesiology. Uh, and what about in light of all the doctrine of God controversies recently in evangelicalism? What would a balanced, uh, non-heresy slinging, not uh, a non-everybody's a heretic slinging book look like? That nevertheless took the traditional approach to the doctrine of God and thought through um, the, maybe even some creative ways to be a classical theist. So the, the three books that came out of that are we have this book, People of the Promise, A Mere Protestant Ecclesiology. Uh, so if you want to get a, uh, a Protestant ecclesiology that I don't think there's anything quite like this text out there. This is a, a lovely text. I didn't write very much for it. I'm not saying it's lovely because I wrote for it. It's lovely mostly because of everybody else who wrote for it. Uh, Philosophy and the Christian, the quest for wisdom in the light of Christ. Uh, a lot of very good, helpful, significant essays in this volume, particularly an essay by one of our OGs, Peter Escalante. I no, it's it's as Peter Escalante and Joseph Minnick, and really, I was only sort of like the the. the I, I, I really I really I really I really was if, you're, if you've watched the King's speech I really was like Jeffrey Rutsch in the King's speech like getting him to like do his magic and that was all I did all I did was it, it really uh, uh, philosophy is a way of life one of the best treatments of Protestantism and philosophy again Peter Escalante is really the dude I just helped put a through few verbs and adverbs in there uh, that got him to uh, write the s it took a lot of coaxing. Finally, uh, the, the Lord is One Reclaiming Divine Simplicity. So there's a lot of books out there on divine simplicity. Uh, uh, you know, there's always one new hot take on divine simplicity these days. Uh, this is a fairly unique book on divine simplicity because it, we gathered, for instance, an ancient, uh, a scholar in the ancient Near East doing his PhD at Catholic University to uh, bring you know contemporary Old Testament scholarship in conversation with contemporary classical theism. There's a lot of really, really helpful essays in here. So Davenant Retrievals, these are our attempts to kind of think through 
uh, classical loci and such theologically are just perennial issues, nevertheless with an attempt to bring him into contemporary conversations. Uh, and I, I say this, this was, you know, I, I more or less uh, uh, helped gather the team that wrote the essays, but actually even back in the day, Ansi was doing most of the editing on these. <laughs> so he, he, the reason they're polished and beautiful is because of Ansi. Uh, so you'll find those in the book room with the attendant prices attached. Uh, even more than that, it is my uh, great pleasure to introduce Dr. Al Harmon, uh, who I've been trying to get to come to one of these for years. Uh, turns out uh, uh, Al, Al and I knew each other back in Washington, D.C. We're good friends. We went to church together, and he also taught me uh, symbolic logic at my undergraduate philosophy, uh, undergraduate philosophy course at CUA. I went to class and then I went to church and I was like, that guy looks like my professor. And then I went back to class and I was like, do you go to like Wallace Press? He did. So uh, we got together. He bought me a lot of beer. That's a that's the measure of a good friend. Uh, it was a dear, uh, a dear friend, have had many good conversations. And uh, this year I coaxed him because his dissertation is on the theme of education in Plato. Classical education, Plato, Al Harmon. So I uh, I wooed him finally. And here he is. He showed up from Florida today. Uh, so join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Al Harmon. And then Colin Redimer, right here, is going to be the respondent. Here you are, sir. Um, it's listed in our schedule that this is Plato's theory of education. Okay, it is not. It's th <laughs> Plato's logic of education. Um, now, look. I'm not going to beat you over the head with symbolic logic, rest assured. We're not going to be doing all that kind of stuff, okay? But, okay, what I'm trying to do is, I guess... Could you angle a little this way because the sound kind of gets lost in the back of this corner? Thank you so much. All right. Is that better? Okay. Um, am I speaking loudly enough? The louder the better. Oh, okay. It's a good way, starting to write this paper, it just it was a 25, 30 page paper, right? Uh, doing this talk. So in order to get it reduced, okay, somehow, how I went to logical form with the thing, okay? And so when, I, um, uh, when I'm talking about logic here in just a few minutes, I'm gonna tell you specifically the sense I'm uh, going to be using it, okay? But don't, don't panic because it's got logic in the, in the title there. In the course of studying Plato's thought concerning education, and paideia is a word that we should all know, okay? Paideia. The reader can trace the stages, the latter stages of Plato's own education. I mean, you can actually see him coming to this opinion as he goes along, okay? And becoming more and more precise about what he means by education and how it's gonna work. The bewildered apparatic ironess of Mino gives way to the confident system builder of Republic and finally resolves in the conservative Republican rule of elders found in laws. In Mino, Socrates wonders how anybody can become good. It looks like a mystery, a blooming buzz of confusion, if you will. Wonders how anybody can possibly become good. The outcomes of education and virtue is so unpredictable that virtue comes to men as if it were a gift from the gods as if it were a gift from the gods. Unexpected, unteachable, and undetermined. To human understanding, at least. 
In Republic, Socrates seemed convinced that the system he's describing will produce good rulers and the best type of men at that, okay, the philosopher kings. For the cadre in training to become philosopher kings, family, household, and property are abolished. This is well known to readers of Plato. Their education is strictly controlled by the state from early youth onward. And finally, in laws, the family and the household are restored, and the education of good householders and good citizens is shared and nurtured by both the family and the state, by both of those things. All three of these moments in the corpus, while very different in their details, share a common set of assumptions that bear on all education. Here comes the reduction, you say. Okay? I'm calling this set of assumptions a logic of education. Plato's description of successful education is useful in the sense that it gives a general account of the beneficial conditions that underlies most of the cases of success, success being the production of a spudaios, a serious person. Um, now, I'm going to very, just very loosely talk about good men, education to virtue, serious men, and good citizens as if they were synonymous, and I do mean them that way, okay, for the course, for the course of this talk. In what follows, I'll outline the framework of beneficial conditions using textual citations. I argue along the way that Plato is describing a pattern of education, a pattern, a paradigm, that is applicable to all education, not just successful or ideal education. He is ready to accept the fundamental outcome of being a good citizen as a worthy end, and with the hopes of a rich spectrum of beneficial outcomes besides the ideal, right? The ideal and something less. In this talk, I use the word logic in two senses. First, in Plato's Theotetus, Theotetus and Socrates test various opinions provided by Theotetus in an attempt to formulate a definition of knowledge. The fourth and the last of these attempts, which still gets refuted, <laughs> it still gets refuted, but it has real legs for us, okay? It has been adopted as a working sort of definition, or at least something to, uh, to shoot for, a goal. The fourth and last of these attempts can be stated thusly. Knowledge is a true opinion coupled with an explanation or description. The word used there is logos. A, a true opinion, aletheis doxa, okay? And it is logos that we provide to explain it, I guess, okay? More towards an explanation here, okay? In this first sense, I'm outlining Plato's description or explanation of education. I prefer the notion of a description rather than an explanation, in all honesty, okay? Because it seems unlikely that an adequate explanation would be possible given Plato's general distinction between knowledge and opinion and their respective objects. What I mean by that, okay, if we're looking at platonic metaphysics in a strict sort of method, okay, strict way, Knowledge is about the ideals. It is about the forms. Okay? What I have, my experience and understanding of everybody in this room and all that sees, all, all you can see, all visible things, all the things that are coming to be and passing away, all I can do is have an opinion about them. I can have a true opinion, and I can have another kind of opinion too. All right? okay? the education is going to give us, it, that's going to be an outcome of both things. Okay? Plato's general distinction between knowledge and opinion and the respective objects. 
I repeated that. The second sense of logic I'm working with has to do with the form that the description or explanation takes. That is, Plato's account can be expressed in the form of a conditional sentence which lends itself to application of either modus ponens or modus tollens, or in either case, such a formulation has the advantage of being testable for both validity and soundness. Right? Um, and of course, we can test the proposition itself, the hypothetical, for soundness just by verification, right? Um, uh, as, as it being, well, either verified or not. Um, modus ponens is a form of inference that has a conditional sentence as its first premise, which in turn contains two distinct propositions that bear either a causal or categorical relationship to one another. It usually takes the form of if P then Q if I'm symbolizing it, okay? It is in the causal mode that I'm interested in formulating this description, in the causal mode. Plato's goal is to, uh, is to provide a description of successful education, and he undertakes this process, this project, with the assumption that this education is the cause of a virtuous person. He also assumes that the education is, that education, writ large, is the Janus of which there are species, both bad and good, which everybody's gonna get an education, right? Whether it's a good one or a bad one or not is, is according to the conditions, okay? Bad beget, education begets bad people. He assumes, this is not, he assumes this not because he would like it to be so, but because when he observes virtuous men, he notes that they, for the most part, have received the sort of education that thriving men normally receive, and the opposite applies to bad men as well. He is not observing this pattern only from his own perspective, but is rather collaborating with others about the common features of good education. His description will have to stand dialectical scrutiny. He puts it up for examination, right? Y'all with me so far? Okay. Put in the form of the simplest sort of conditional or hypothetical sentence, we can make a start constructing a model. Again, this expresses a causal relationship. Being a good citizen is the effect of education. Put another way, education is the cause of virtue, and we can describe the necessary conditions for the pro production of a virtuous person. In this case, the consequent of the compound hypothetical sentence will state the necessary conditions in this formulation of it, okay? While the antecedent is an actualized condition. So, here's the proposition. If Socrates is a good citizen, then Socrates has been well-educated, right? Now, here are my targets, okay? I've got to give you both the antecedent and the consequent, right? Is Socrates a good citizen? What does it mean to be a good citizen would be the question to ask, okay? And if he has been well-educated, describe that education for me. All right. The antecedent of the hypothetical is Socrates is a good citizen, and the consequent is Socrates has been well-educated. I'll start with the antecedent and consider what qualities Plato thinks a virtuous person displays. That is to say, what Plato takes as the end of education. Here's this guy, and here are his qualities. For the time being, I'm treating the virtuous person and the virtuous citizen as synonymous, interchangeable terms. So what is a good citizen? 
I think the most succinct texts that can answer this are found in Meno and Protagoras. In conversation with Socrates, and these are the earliest ones, by the way, when I give you these citations, there are other citations like that. It's not comprehensive what I'm offering you. But what I do look out for is contradictions. I look for some sort of area where this is going to be contradicted, and I can't find contradictions to these two statements about um, citizenship here. He asked Protagoras what he's teaching the students that, co that come to him to learn, okay? And he says, Protagoras, the subject is good judgment concerning both the homestead, that is, how one might best manage his own household, and also concerning the city, how one might be best able to act and speak about the affairs of the city. Do I follow what you've said, I ask? You seem to be speaking about the political art and to promise to make men good citizens. That's the very thing, Socrates, he replied. That's the promise I promise. He's a punner, and I'm going to help him when I can. Okay, It's an interesting sentence, right? This passage echoes the sense of Mino. Here in conversation with Anatus in this particular place, Socrates reports that Mino has told him that he, Mino that is, deeply desires the type of wisdom and virtue by which men know how to manage both the affairs of their household and their cities well, attending to their parents likewise, and how men know to both receive hospitably and send away strangers and citizens alike, as is worthy of a good man as is worthy of a good man. I've argued elsewhere that these passages can be reduced. It's our job, right, to reduce things. They reduce to the actualized ability of a good citizen to manage well. That's what I went for, okay? Those are, those are ex his explicit words. I'll go with it, manage well. For our present purposes, what it means to manage well can be construed in terms, in terms of beneficial action. Good citizens act in such a way that benefits their household and their city in both and city. In both cases, however, we might be able to add to this ability a specific bit of wisdom that will surely be an instance of managing well. Being a good manager does not mean simply ruling in a beneficial way, but also recognizing the competency of both fellow citizens and members of one's own household. Both these passages are from middle period dialogues, Mino and Protagoras that I just quoted. But in his last work, so over the course of the rest of it all, in the last work laws, he adds an important quality to his account of the good citizen. The present proposition holds that education is the education in virtue beginning in childhood that causes both desire and love to become a perfect citizen. That's what you have awoken in this person, okay, is a desire and love to become a perfect citizen. That is to understand how to rule and be ruled justly. I'm with him. It seems to me that this proposition strives to identify this particular sort of nurture alone as education. The good manager realizes that his expertise is limited, that sometimes the expert advice from other citizens is more beneficial than his own, and that in these cases it is better to be ruled rather than to rule. 
He takes advice from others to manage well, whether they be friends, fellow citizens, their wives, or even slaves. Because slaves can be quite expert at different things, and you look for the, to the advice of a slave sometimes in order to run the household well. The one exception to this, by the way, uh, that I cannot, I cannot discover any mention or hint of it in Plato is the idea that a child would rule. I can't find it. And it, and it seems out of character for him completely. <clears throat> and finally, the mature citizen recognizes the benefit of having been well-educated, right? And in that very fashion that he has been educated, I got a good education. Here's what it looks like. And this is the citation. I say that the first childish perception of pleasure and pain in the young accompanies the nascent formation of virtue and vice in the soul. As to prudence and steadfast true opinion, one is fortunate, I wish it wasn't fortunate, but it is, okay, to come by them even in old age. Indeed, only the perfect man comes to have these things and all the goods they entail. I reckon that education attends the first formation of virtue in a child. Clearly, when pleasure, love, pain, and hate are bred co correctly in souls not yet capable of rational thought, then once they are so capable, those souls agree that they have become correctly accustomed to the proper has habits. This consonant is the whole of virtue. This consonance, pardon me, symphonia. This symphony, okay, is the whole of virtue. But the portion that fosters the correct relation to pleasures and pains, so that one hates what it is necessary to hate from beginning to end, and likewise one loves what one should love, if this is taken as a definition and called education, then I think you've defined it correctly. It just seems the most complete that he gives us, okay? And you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful sort of picture that he draws, okay? But it does seem unreachable in some ways, okay? In summary, then we can draw on these various readings to cobble together a description of the well-educated citizen. The good citizen has the actualized ability to manage his household in a beneficial way. He has the actualized ability to benefit his city. He can actually do this, right? It's not just potential. It is, it is mature. He can do this. Understands how to rule and be ruled in a just, beneficial fashion and recognizes the orderly and beneficial nature of his own education and its applicability to other human beings. If we have all this, we have someone who's actually capable of being a good educator as well. Right? This is the kind of education we need. Although this set of actualized or developed qualities is not comprehensive, for the time being I will treat it as a general set that makes up the consequent of our hypothetical sentence. So when I have a good citizen before me, that is a sufficient condition to infer that the necessary conditions for the formation of a good citizen have been present, that they've been brought to bear. 
The consequent of the hypothetical, Socrates has been well-educated, should articulate this, and identifying the various necessary components that constitute the education of a good citizen is a much more complex task. Now we have to put together the education part. Plato provides several different lists of virtues that we find scattered across the corpus. Again, these are numerous. These are numerous. Um, some contain certain aspects or virtues that other lists don't. don't. Um, simplicity is one that comes up um, fairly regularly, but doesn't make it each and every time. What the first list we look at, phronesis isn't on it. Prudence isn't included, right? So these are rather hit and miss, but again, they are not contradictory to other passages that you can find expressing the same sort of um, ideas. Um, for the most part, these explicitly named virtues can be divided into two categories, namely natural capacities and developed virtues. Sounds like Aristotle, right? Okay. The former are innate capacities, either present or absent in varying degrees, and virtues that result from education. That there is a set of necessary conditions seems obvious. The language of Republic, um, if this is 486 to 487a, where the ideal outcome of education is foremost in Plato's mind, he's training the philosopher kings in this case, remember, he confirms it here. He says, does it seem to you that any of the things we've discussed are unnecessary or amenical for the soul intent on grasping being adequately in the end? No, they are surely necessary. How can anyone criticize a practice like this, one that no one can pursue adequately unless he is by nature retentive, intelligent, magnificent, graceful, endeared and akin to the truth, justice, courage, and moderation. Right? There's a list. Again, notice that prudence isn't on there. We have um, some of our uh, cardinal virtues mentioned, but these other ones are talents. They're talents. I, 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 I hesitate to use the word, but there it is, okay? We find another example of this sort of a list at Mino 88 um, through 8, immediately following a contrasting list of material virtues, health, strength, beauty, and wealth, Socrates names six of the virtues located in the soul. He turns inward. Then let us go on to examine the things or the virtues of the soul. This is something you call moderation, justice, bravery, intelligence, memory, magnificent, and all the other things of this sort, right? Okay, he agrees. Three of the named virtues here are familiar to us as cardinal virtues, moderation, um, justice, and courage, or manliness. The set of virtues named here, okay, which, from which prudence is conspicuously absent, are of the, it's because it's the answer to the dialogue, right? Yeah, virtue is phronesis. It, that's that's the, way it, it, the way it ends up, okay? The, um, the set of virtues named here are the sort I am classifying as developed virtues. But consider the second set of three, namely intelligence, memory, and magnificent. Magnificence. <coughs> 
These three virtues strike me as obviously different in kind, and my attempt to show that the education of the citizen and ruler share similar elements depends in part on this distinction. There's a third complex of conditions that I loosely group under the genus of environmental conditions. Uh, I'm looking for a better thing to call it. If anybody has any suggestions, you know, I'd love to hear them. This group includes circumstances of birth, access to teachers, continuity of education, the willingness of the student himself. All of these things have to come to bear. Consider the following passage from Republic. Now, this is a rather lengthy one, but it's worth it. Okay? You, I, you, education is going to be all of those things coming together. Ideal education, successful education, all those things coming together. Okay? Towards the end of the lengthy critique of poetry found in Book one, or 2 and 3, Socrates extends the censorship of the state beyond the products of the poets to all products or artifacts of craft. He says, I suppose it is the case that these qualities also fill painting and all the other various crafts, and they permeate weaving, embroidery, building, and all the other productive arts. They produce effects upon the nature of the body and other growing things. Either grace or lack of it resides in all these things. Accordingly, lack of grace, lack of measure, and lack of harmony are the sisters and brothers of bad speech and bad manners. The opposite of these things bear the same relation and are imitative of wisdom and good character. Absolutely, Glaucon says. Are we then limiting our own due supervision only to the poets, compelling them to make poems that imitate good character, or else not write poems in our city? These other craftsmen also bear watching and should be prevented from incorporating bad character, licentiousness, or gracelessness in images of living things, their buildings, or anything else the craftsmen produce. The craftsman who cannot abide by these rules may not practice his trade so that our guardians are not raised in the midst of evil images like cattle grazing on bad grass. I love him. Plucking tufts all day long so that little by little a great evil comes to reside in their souls. Therefore, isn't it necessary that the gifted craftsman we must find seeks after the nature of the noble and graceful so that by living in a healthy place the youth will be benefited from every quarter? In this place, won't something like the fine work strike their eyes and ears like a breeze carrying health from delightful places? So that obscurely, obscurely, from childhood on, they gradually become similar until the beauty of reason comes to lead friendship and consonance. There it is again. Once again, Symphonia. Surely this would be the best upbringing, he replies. Isn't it because of these things, Glaucon, that being trained in music has the greatest effect insofar as it molds the soul? so that rhythm and harmony seize it firmly and impart grace when no one has been brought up this way, of course. If not, then the opposite occurs, right? Furthermore, when one has been trained in this way, he will keenly perceive when things are deficient and not crafted or grown finely. 
And since he rightly disdains such things, he will welcome and delight in fine things, taking them to his soul and being benefited by them so that he might become fine and good. He correctly despises and hates ugly things while yet a youngster. This is before he grasps the reason why ugly things provoke him. But his upbringing prepares him for the time when reason will come to him. When it does, he knows it because of his close kinship with it, beauty that is, and he welcomes it. Plato's description leads us to the notion that education includes all experience, from the experiential manifold that includes the furniture of day-to-day living to one's own recognition of spiritual harmony. When education has guided one to understand that their own state of soul is in consonance with the patterns engraved on the heart. Returning to our original proposition then, if Socrates is a good citizen, then Socrates has been well educated. We now have enough information to say what Plato means by good citizen and what sort of education he has in mind. The good citizen has the actualized ability, that word again, actualized ability, to benefit his household and his fellow man justly. This includes his ability to be ruled or be ruled in turn justly. The well-educated person is a blessed person is who is the recipient of a set of individualized natural capacities, his gifts or talents, in varying degrees. He says that up front. This is why we don't get equal outcomes in education is because we don't have the same talents, right? It's, it's part of the unpredictability of the idea. He has the correct sort of manifold experience, okay, this includes formal training, that allows him the opportunity to develop his gifts in the right way. And he's willing to be educated correctly. He has to bring something to it, okay, to be willing to be educated correctly. Considering this consequent, this does not express a single necessary condition at all, but rather a conjunction, an extremely complex conjunction of several necessary conditions under which, un, which under strict rules of inference, would require that they be all be satisfied in order to produce a good citizen. And we can't have that, though, right? I do not think, however, that this is precisely what Plato is describing by the time he comes to write the laws. Again, Laws contains his most mature description of education. In that latter work, he accepts that these conditions will be met or not met in varying degrees from individual to individual. The result is a city of citizens that tend to be good for the most part, with some citizens being more or less beneficial than others. Let's assume for the moment that Socrates' goodness is sufficient as evidence that he has received the sort of education that is necessary to, re- to receive to actually be good. By way of experiment, however, one can assume the converse. Now, this is what logicians will start doing. We'll start trying to look at what the converse, right? That the presence of a good education is sufficient evidence that there will be a good man, right? then we would get some sort of a biconditional formulation, right? If we wanted to be scientific about it, taken together, this would amount to the expression of a biconditional. Namely, if Socrates is a good citizen, then Socrates has been well-educated, and if Socrates was well-educated, then he is a good citizen. 
This formulation cannot be supported by Plato's account unless we introduce some sort of modal language, right, that expresses prob probability. We, we're moving from, in Aristotelian terms, from demonstration to dialectic. We're not able to say this scientifically. Education is not a science, he seems to be telling us. It, uh, the, the predictability that we enjoy from a science, okay, is, is, as Professor V this morning pointed out, you got to deal with at least the, the, the objective standard of mathematics. The closer we can get to that, okay, the more certainly certainty we can operate with, and we're not going to have that. We're not going to have that. It's not going to turn into that. A more appropriate formulation that would capture Plato's view of the matter would be, if Socrates is a good citizen, if he is a good citizen, then Socrates has likely been well-educated. And if Socrates is, was well-educated, then he is likely a good citizen, for the most part. It seems to me <clears throat> that given what Plato has told us in the above passages, that we cannot maintain the causal relationship with the hypothetical without introducing some sort of language that articulates a notion of probability rather than certainty. In Aristotelian terms, we've shifted from formal demonstration to dialectical argument. For the Platonic educator, a, a grasp of both the capacities and limits of human action leavens all of the foregoing. In this direct practical application of the course of action derived from the educational philosophy we have surveyed, the educator never loses sight of the fact that he bases his systematic planning on a series of predictions and that these predictions suffer from a fundamental vulnerability to both privation and unforeseen events or impeding causes, which will occasionally intrude and cause failure. This understanding informs the rhetoric he must employ to promote the stability of the educational system. He fosters the stability of the city by persuading his fellow citizens that while they may work together to bring a modicum of order to the process of human character development, their efforts will sometimes fall short of the mark, utterly fail from time to time, or even succeed but not benefit the city, as in the case of, say, Theotetus. Um, now, here's a guy who is, seems like an ideal student of uh, Socrates, right? He opens up the dialogue, though, okay, talking about what a fine fellow Theotetus is, but... At that moment, he is being carried from the field of battle, mortally wounded, as suggested. He's not going to survive. And this is exactly what Socrates says about him. He says he'll be a good guy if he lives, All right? If he makes it, okay? The same with the men of Athens who go and invade Atlantis. Now, these are virtuous men. That's the way that they're represented to us in the myth, right? In Timaeus. These are virtuous men. In the island, she sinks, Right <laughs> um, now, what do you have there? You have a discontinuity, okay, in leadership back in Athens. Right, this is the the kind of thing that Jaeger was uh, after when he wrote Paideia. The first line of that three uh, book in three volumes is Athens fell. This is what prompted the big conversation about education in Athens. 
right? Where we got into comparative educations, comparative the education of Crete, of Sparta, and the different regimes. Okay, this is when this is what the the, the event that perpetuated that, according to Jaeger at least. <clears throat> Plato's model of education in the Republic, which dedicated uh, with dedicated cadres of future rulers, identified separated from their families and educated throughout their lives, guarded closer than gold, it says in the Mino. If you were able to tell who the good kids are, which he definitely says he can do in a republic, you'd lock them up in the citadel and guard them more closely to gold so they won't be corrupted, right? Okay, but that's exactly the kind of education that's being given for these people. They've got nice furniture even, right? Okay. <clears throat> So this gives way, by the time we get to the laws, to an acceptance of the family and a dependence on the education one receives in the household and extended experience in an ordered city. Plato replaces the state-supervised cadre of incipient philosopher kings with the family, household, and observation of communal traditions, most of these religious in nature. For Magnesia, that is, the second utopia that he creates. The Callipolis of the Republic is a city of gods or the children of gods, while the second best city is a city of human beings and based on the household and common education. The educational logic is the same for both. It's same for good education. It's same for a shoemaker as it is for a philosopher king. You've got to have the, the capacity. You've got to have the development, those things working together. Both require the diligent, skillful development of individual gifts. Thank you. Absolutely. <clears throat> I'm Colin Redimer, Vice President of the Davenant Institute. Uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't met me already, it's good to be with you all. Um, and uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Harmon, for a fantastic paper. Um, I want to begin by uh, not only thanking you, but by just making sure folks know, we, we've talked about this ahead of time, um, there's nothing uh, in his paper that I, that I disagree with um, in a straightforward sense. So primarily what I'm going to be uh, addressing here is what I would consider a sizable gap in our readings of Plato. So um, by, by way of emphasis, there are things happening in Plato's dialogues uh, which are not explicitly addressed in the way that many of the statements which, which were gone over um, in great detail uh, and, and well said um, about what education ought to be, the explicit statements that, that Socrates uh, makes throughout Plato's works. I can summarize uh, the, the gap that I see as following, as, as the following. If Plato's theory of education is merely to produce good citizens who are activating their natural capacities and becoming useful to themselves and their fellow men, uh, then it's not sure why anyone would need Plato at all. Um, this this uh, explicit teaching about what education's purpose is, uh, what, what Socrates seems to be doing in, in uh, the Platonic corpus um, 
is done by manifold other teachers, both in Athens then and in the, the contemporary educational scene. Uh, very few educators uh, openly advertise their school, and some of you run schools, as saying, send your children to us. We will inhibit their natural capacities uh, to grow into people who are competent at running their lives and able to you know, uh, accomplish the things that they can accomplish, become strong at the things that they're gifted in. Oh, and by the way, we will corrupt them and make them hate you, their parents, and the city itself. Right? You, you simply can't run a school that way. Um, <clears throat> And so because there are all these other places we can go to teach the lessons, uh, which, which, again, Socrates does explicitly say he's going to teach, um, I think there just are works which are more accessible and more effective at accomplishing these goals. And, if, and in as much as that's what we're interested in, we might be interested in going to those texts rather than to Plato. I may sound like I'm judging Plato uh, a second time, but I'm not. Rather, I'm asking this question. What, if anything, does Plato's theory of education have to offer us which we can't find in these other places. The people in this room who may be listening, or if you're, uh, if you're listening in the future, reading this paper, uh, we have to ask this question. And, and we, after all, are discussing Plato in light of what I consider to be one of the most hopeful developments in modern education, uh, both theory and practice, which is the classical Christian education movement. So what, if anything, beyond these practical, uh, useful things which were previously mentioned as Plato offer us. So to begin my investigation, um, I'm going to look uh, at a really short dialogue by Plato, which is the Theages. Um, this is Plato's dialogue on wisdom. He has four dialogues covering each of the four cardinal virtues, and the Theages is the dialogue which covers wisdom. It opens in a highly irregular fashion for a Platonic dialogue with Socrates being approached by a pillar of respectable Athenian democracy. So in most of the dialogues, you know, you have, you have Socrates kind of talking to rapscallions and sophists and kids and, you know, random uh, anonymous people and slaves. But here, uh, Democritus, who's a farmer and a respectable Athenian, you know, member of the civic community, wealthy, um, he approaches Socrates and uh, begins a conversation with him. And he is having this conversation because he needs help raising his son, Theages. Theages, it seems, wants something from his education that he claims his father cannot provide. Okay, so there's, there's something that his father, uh, with all of his patriotism, all of his useful abilities, is not providing. The father doesn't understand even what the son is saying. And so one of the first things that happens in the dialogue is Socrates says, well, let's just go ask your son, because you, you don't even know what he wants. So, so Theages, what do you want? You know, why are you puzzled? Your dad, I assume, he's taught you farming, right? And so sure enough, um, this, this vexing problem of the son's education is, is being uncovered. Um, and I think at, by looking at this, we can kind of uncover what, what I think there's, there's, some kind of, there's some secret sauce to the Platonic education, which, which makes his theory distinct from these other places we can go to think about how to usefully unlock our natural abilities or, or become good citizens. Um, so what is the secret of education? Right at the start, uh, Demodocus assures us that he has taught his son the art of farming and the related useful arts, the arts of the citizen of Athens. Theages wants more, but what? The more, Theages says, is wisdom itself. That's what Theages wants. So Socrates begins by interrogating what is meant by this wisdom. And eventually, he uncovers what Theages truly wants. He interrogates Theages' desire. So what is this wisdom? Uh, Theages wants to be a tyrant. And that's something his father can't teach him. 
It seems Theages is not hoping to be educated by Socrates at all, but rather he wants to be educated by a tyrant to learn the art of tyranny. Socrates knows nothing about tyranny, because as we've heard, Socrates is well-educated. He's a good citizen. Um, he's, he's, not, this isn't, he's not the kind of person who can even begin teaching you that. In fact, we could go so far as to say that Socrates not only is, is a good citizen, he's been an idiot his whole life. So in, if anything, if he has been a bad citizen, he's been a bad citizen because he doesn't even participate. Um, idiot in the sense of private person. Uh, Theages further doesn't seem to be too promising of a pupil, it turns out, as, he, as Socrates further interrogates Theages. He fails to see the relevance of the questions that Socrates proposes to him. Um, <clears throat> and Socrates does this, as he often does, in the form of metaphors. He brings up the metaphor of the ship, which goes nowhere, unlike in the Republic. He brings up the metaphor of the chariot driver, which goes nowhere. He brings up the metaphor of the doctor, as you see in the Gorgias, and it goes nowhere. He brings up the metaphor of the cook. Uh, again, it goes nowhere. Theages can't hold his own opinion even long enough to be honest about his own tyrannical desire. In one line, he says he wants the wisdom. What's the wisdom? It's uncovered. He wants to be a tyrant. In another passage, uh, he says, well, but I mean, I don't want to kill people. You know, I, I don't want to be in charge of things. Um, he can't even be honest and hold on to what it is that he thinks he wants. Theages intuits that the wisdom he's seeking is likely wisdom of the city, and he follows the argument that Socrates gives him just far enough to gather that wisdom in general is a form of knowledge, but he can't see beyond that. He just wants what his father has, but also, this is where he ends, to be clever like the other boys who spend time with you, Socrates. He wants to be clever. He can't perceive that the wisdom is of the city itself. And the city, as it says in the Republic, being like the man, is thus an exposition of the knowledge of Theogius himself to himself. There's a form of self-knowledge which he seems to want, but can't even come to the realization that that's the subject of his desire. Socrates makes every effort to send Theogius away in as polite a way as possible. After all, this influential father is standing right there. So... Uh, Democritus is there you know, with Theages, his son, as Socrates is interrogating his son. Um, Socrates uncovers that Theages is an idiot, and not in the way that Socrates is an idiot, but an, you know, a moron. Um, and, uh, and Socrates, therefore, can't, he can't just say, well, you know, Theages, I'm not taking you. Go home. Uh, because uh, the father, who's a respectable and powerful man in the city with wealth, is going to be upset by that. Socrates has to be polite. <clears throat> In the end, he reluctantly agrees to allow Theages to spend time with him. He doesn't want to, but he'll allow him to, uh, provided that his daemon doesn't say no, and he warns him really sternly, if my daemon says no, you can't, you can't. And the kid says, okay, I agree. Um, and then secondly, he gives him another warning, and the warning is, I paraphrase, kids like you often feel like you're making progress when you're in my presence. Um, in fact, sometimes they prefer even when they're looking at me or touching me. Uh, but you're not getting cleverer. Once you leave me or stop looking at me or, or touching me, um, you're going to go back to the way that you were. And that's just the way it's going to be for you. As long as you're okay with that, you can hang out with me. <clears throat> this contact high might satisfy you or it might not, but it's all you, Theages, can get from me. 
In effect, Socrates is saying that Theages is uneducable. And this is the blasphemous statement that we simply don't want to hear. This ancient standard of uh, education, as expressed here by Plato, is so radically different that we hardly know what to make of a dialogue like this at all. In the modern system, we lack uh, what Vereen has called the ancient standard of excellence that can only be had by hierarchy, judgment, and eccentricity. And now we deal in the opposite, equality, feedback, and homogeneity. An outline of this difference is then necessary for us to clarify what was meant by education as conceived by Plato. So it is all of the things that Dr. Herman says. Uh, Those are all the explicit statements that Plato puts in the mouth of Socrates, and and I believe genuinely. Um, There's this other thing, which you you referenced a few times, the the production of the philosopher king, um, uh, etc., uh, but I, I think it, it's glossed over and, and needs to be looked at directly. So why does Socrates not take Theages? Or he takes him reluctantly and with these warnings. Here I'm going to turn to uh, who, someone I consider to be a supreme re- reader of Plato, which is Leo Strauss, uh, to help unpack. In his essay, Persecution and the Art of Writing, Strauss deals with the problem of our conception of education as it r- relates to our epistemology and anthropology. I'm going to select just a few passages, and I'll read them in line with my, uh, my own reflection as a guide to rereading the Theages for you. He writes, What attitude people adopt toward freedom of public discussion depends decisively on what they think about popular education and its limits. Generally speaking, pre-modern philosophers were more timid in this respect than modern philosophers. The timidity we see in Socrates' engagement with Theages hinges on something which is practically invisible to us, but was all too clear to Plato. And this is the problem of persecution. In an era where we're free to speak, uh, you know, uninhibited in publishing our thoughts, uh, either in paper or online or into a microphone, the natural consequence is a belief in education which is or ought to be, we think, universal. Plato depicts Socrates as shy towards Theages. Why? Because he doesn't want, Socrates doesn't want to expose himself. He knows there is a danger in certain truths which are not politically neutral. They might be philosophically necessary to ask certain questions. And it could at the same time be politically disastrous to ask those questions in public. He knows that there's a danger in certain truths which are not politically neutral, even if they're morally salutary. Thus, his investigation of the boy is cryptic. That is not something we even have to consider in modernity, certainly not in an era when we speak of an enrollment crisis, for example. So imagine Socrates confronted with the enrollment crisis of modern higher education, where we just don't have enough students. What's Socrates' suggestion? He says, great. (laughs) Most of these students are, are, are in some way not worth teaching. Our language about enrollment crisis, just as one example, uh, exposes our unexamined assumptions about the educability and its its, uh, commingled edification of anyone. So educability and and, and, uh, edification go hand in hand for us, and it's universal in our conception. And back to Strauss. The philosophical architects of modernity looked forward to a time when, as a result of the progress of popular education, practically complete freedom of speech would be possible, or, to exaggerate for the purposes of clarification, to a time when no one would suffer any harm 
from hearing any truth. Further, he adds, the attitude of an earlier type of writer was fundamentally different. They believed in a gulf which separated the wise from the vulgar, and that this was a basic fact of human nature, which could not be influenced by any progress of popular education. Philosophy or science was essentially the privilege of the few. They were convinced that philosophy as such was subject to and hated by the majority of men. <clears throat> so uh, we can see proof that this is the case uh, outside of the Theages, just by briefly looking at, at Plato's Phaedo, uh, which I know was in your, in your footnotes, 40, you know, 46b. The masses here are laughing at the necessarily rare because also the supreme type of man, the philosopher, while a murderous rage seethes under their grins. Though Plato adds that they laugh in this way without knowledge. We can further look at the Republic, uh, 520b, where Socrates claims that there's a superior type of man called the philosopher, who grows up spontaneously against the will of the regime, regardless of what regime they're born into. Or further, uh, we could look 494a. Uh, and the raising up of the philosopher, through envy and avarice, the whole city is as likely to turn on the rare youth of a true philosophic nature in its potency. So we can see Socrates, uh, throughout the Platonic corpus, is talking about the cultivating ability that we have with education for any given human, but what he's only rarely addressing is that the nature of the given humans that you're cultivating are different, and different categorically, not just in terms of their capacity. Uh, <clears throat> while most of us are familiar with the salutary-sounding aspects of Plato's theory of education, uh, such as the, the line which Aristotle quotes, which I believe is also quoted tonight, that the beginning of education is teaching of the young what they ought to love and what they ought to hate, um, we see similar st sentiments in Plato's seventh letter but we can see this slight twist to them if we begin looking closely. The key passage uh, it goes as follows. For this knowledge of education is not something that can be put into words like other sciences, but after long-continued intercourse between teacher and pupil in joint pursuit of the subject, suddenly, like a light flashing forth when a fire is kindled, it is born in the soul and straightway nourishes itself. This light, being kindled, may happen, but it may not. And there's no technique by which you can make it happen. There's no program of education. There's nothing you can do. It's out of your control. There are no words to describe it even. There is no guaranteed way to execute it. The love we hear Aristotle talking about is impressed upon us, and we are impressionable, but there's another truth that Plato's hiding, and that's that we are the stuff that is impressed upon and it's our nature which is key, not the technique or the content or the subject. And once that is seen, we see further that to Plato our natures differ. Because of this, the teaching we see Socrates offer to Theages is a lie in some ways. And of course, uh, it is one that Socrates has the gentlemanly grace to admit to Theages himself. Oh yeah, you can come get an education with me. You'll feel clever when you're with me. Um, it won't stick. And of course, uh, it's one that Socrates... Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, 
And of course, one that Socrates has the gentlemanly grace to admit uh, is a lie. Theages has no potential to become a philosopher. He's uneducable by nature. And Socrates alludes to as much in, in the Republic when he brings up Theages. Um, the teaching that there are uneducable people in an ultimate sense, and further, that this must be kept hidden from them uh, or from the masses, is perhaps clearer in other passages of Plato. In the Republic, Plato claims that the philosophical nature is necessarily among the rarest human types. Further, he claims that education cannot be forced and should always come about through play and driven by the interests of the young. Don't force them to learn things. Let them play. Look at what they're doing, and then you'll know what kind of person they are. What are they interested in? What, how should we educate them? Where are they going with their own education? If you combine those two claims, both from the Republic, this means that, that mass education cannot work because the undistracted love of learning is rare. Plato intends to keep it that way since learning in the hands of the masses is as likely to lead to evil as good. Education from the perspective of the state is mostly about hiding the fact that some of the people are philosophers born, all while allowing those who rule or teach to observe and identify the natures of the young to select out those with the potential to become philosophers. Every decent modern reader is bound to be shocked by the mere suggestion that the great man might have deliberately deceived a large majority of his readers. Yet this deception is key to understanding Plato. To return to my initial question, what, if anything, does Plato's theory of education have to offer us? The answer can only be a teaching which we, from where we sit, must reject. As someone who has spent time in the classical Christian education world, I have to conclude that we cannot use Plato as a model for our educational institutions. At present, while lip service is paid to him in our Socratic discussions, uh, and by keeping him in the curriculum, he exists there as an aged uncle invited to dinner out of an abundance of piety. <laughs> he shows up, he speaks, we nod and we ignore him. Respected, but ignored. And then we return to our meal. I'm thankful not to be the judge of Plato, but I cannot advise that he be taught by the masses for the masses. As a pious Christian, it would violate my conscience. As an, as an American, it would violate our sacred laws. Socrates made every effort to send Theages away so that he could live the life of a pious Athenian. Or if Theages wouldn't go, he knew well enough not to teach him anything at all, and to prepare him in advance with the knowledge that he wouldn't learn much. I suspect the classical Christian educators of the modern era who keep Plato in the curriculum are in much the same relationship to him. He's interesting, but not much use. In his presence, we feel intelligent. When we leave him, we continue on, as if we'd never even heard him. In truth, we can't hear him, as we believe in education for every citizen, a useful and ever-bettering life for our children, we believe in the inherent dignity of each soul created in the image of God. These are values we cannot and should not give up. And I advise you to turn to other texts to accomplish your educational goals. At best, reading Plato will be harmless, a harmless diversion, which we can make use of as we teach the truly essential elements of logic, grammar, and rhetoric. Plato is merely an adjunct. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
guess you know once you say it, it to, to you it's been said right um, but I haven't focused on um, modes and methods um, that's uh, that's a um, that's, that wasn't really what was interesting uh, interesting to me in doing this particular talk but rather as I was describing it that logic of education here are the necessary conditions that you need to produce this product this good person or this good citizen and but it by the way you can be trying to produce a shoemaker the shoemaker is still going to have to have the intelligence at least to have, be a shoemaker is going to have to have memory is going to have to have those different kinds of things. The shoemaker, the apprentice shoemaker working in the shop can definitely come to the um, notice of whoever is running the journeyman or whoever the head shoemaker is and say, that's a likely lad, okay? Or we maybe we need to move him to taking care of the chickens. Okay? <laughs> what, what, whatever it is, okay, these things, it, there is a winnowing process. I, by the way, I just want to one remark very quickly to a modern ear to a modern educator the idea that you can look at a child and know what their what their talents are okay with the degree of uh, precision that Plato is claiming that you can do it these these must be some the e4s the overseers who are observing the children i can see them they're out there looking if you spent time with children in a playground you see them do this you see them separate each other that I, as i've uh, spoken with you I, I think that this is an instance of um megalopropeia magnificence right it's uh it's that that socrates is magnificent in that sense oh oh no uh, Plato tells us that the child oh, can you can see it in them. You, you yep. can see magnificent there. And what I'm and, and that long appendix that I wrote on megalopropeia on magnificence, that's what I was playing on, mm -hmm. okay, was that the shoemaker, the apprentice shoemaker can display it in the same way, okay, not in the same quality, okay, but the same thing happens when um, when in, in all the forms of technique. Um, in uh, the poets, of course, are divine and blessed, and we can't touch them. We don't know how they happen. They don't even know what they're doing themselves. Right? <laughs> that's that's the that's the verdict on the poets. But for the rest of it, all of these things are. He's giving us um, again. Uh, it's it's a statement about human nature, not um, not a recommendation. I would want to recommend it for modes and methods. But I just to. Uh, just to say this, I wouldn't be selected by the overseer. <laughs> they wouldn't have come around and say, that's the guy right there. Let's turn him into a philosopher king. I worked for 20 years and went to back to school when I was 37, right? Uh, without any college at all, right? Now, I could do that because I've been working so diligently and everything. My wife's a physician. And all of a sudden, she got done with her training and said, it's time to go back to school. And I did that, okay? I'm not the, a non-traditional student, we call people like me. And, uh, and I wouldn't fit in Plato's system. I understand that, yeah. okay? I think that he's giving us a picture of things where it, that it ought to introduce some humility. We ought to be looking out for these necessary conditions that he talks about. We ought to be looking, and we ought to be thankful when we see them. 
when we see those things coming together in a, in, a, in a young developing person, we ought to be really, really thankful and aware and diligent about what's happening to those people. Right? It still is not enough to guarantee anything. It is still not enough. Um, but, you can, but you can try. And for the most part, it seems to, you know, there, there is a plan there. I would not recommend all the, uh, you know, all the uh, children starting off with, well, with dance. I'm not really sure we need something like that. Physical training, I, there's people in here talking about physical training earlier today. Physical training, it, it's important, okay? Plato's got something completely different going on, and he counts it as necessary. Okay, I wouldn't count this as necessary. We don't need that. We need the development of those talents. We need to know what those are, okay, best we can, and seek to develop those. I guess if, if I could respond to the response. Sure. Okay, so so um, two, two things. One, you know, I think when we're, when we're reading, for example, The Republic, and you brought up the Philosopher King a few times, the Philosopher King as, as you know, kind of... Um, constructed in speech in the Republic is distinct from the ever-present search for the philosophical type we see in Socrates' interaction um, you know, in, in the action of the dialogues. So, for example, with Theages, he's not looking for somebody, he doesn't really think he's going to you know, make Athens great again. Um, he's just looking for, for somebody who he can have a good conversation with. Yeah. So that'd be the first, the first thing, and I'd love to pick, yeah. get your thoughts. The second, if I could have two, and I want to hear what you think, and then we'll open it up for questions, is um, you know, you've, you've gone to the shoemaker, for example. So we'll take the shoemaker. Um, the shoemaker, and, and you said in your talk, I believe, that they have to be, you know, that, that a good education makes them just, for example. Um, but you also said that from, from Plato's perspective, what it is to really know things is to know the forms and not the becomings of things, right? Yes. And, and so therefore, um, if you don't have the philosopher then you can never actually know what the just shoemaker is. And therefore, actually, his I believe his entire educational system is predicated on the idea that we're going to produce the philosopher. You have to produce it, or you can never answer the question of whether or not the shoemaker has been well-educated. Well Why is that problematic? Yeah, Because I, you don't know that, that they're just. I don't see how it fits in. Because because you have because a good education requires that they become good at what they're doing and that they're just and these words need meaning to them, and the meaning is only known by somebody who's ascended to the form of the good and the just. Yeah. Well, where's that? I don't see how it's responsible. Yeah, he I, literally I, said that you to to have a good education you have to end up becoming good at what you're doing and justly fitting in with the rest of the city because you're a good citizen. Yeah, those the rule words have no content. Justly in yeah. term. Yeah. Um, yes, that's see, and that's a political actor now. But let's go back to the shoemaker for sure. just a second, okay? The shoemaker can be judged whether it's a good shoemaker or not, okay? Plato would explain the how good a shoemaker he was, what by the by the precision by which he approaches the ideal shoe. Now, look, if I'd been Plato, I would have never put the bit about the bed in book nine, okay? I just, you know, when, when, he, when he does that, the whole thing just sort of loses grandeur, you know? There's a bed. You've got an I, I understand what he's doing. He's trying to make sense of the one and the many and the, and the way that those interact with one another. How it is we're able to make that epistemological move of judgment, yep. right? Categorical judgment. 
So when when he you know he's he's got this ideal. There is an idea of a shoe, okay, and tied to that now isn't necessarily. Is it a beautiful shoe? It's going to be a functional shoe, right? It's going to be a functional shoe. The function of the thing is really where he's going to to uh, judge artifacts. Uh, harmonious artifact, artifacts, painting, embroidered, stuff like that. Uh, we already know what he thinks about painting. Okay, It's imitative, stri strictly imitative. We, we don't really like that. If I paint a picture of a bed, I'm another image removed Okay, from the guy who builds the bed. Right? So I can judge him. I can say how good a bed maker he is by the functionality of the bed, at least. I can I can start groundwork there. After that, I guess you can have an ornamental bed uh, bedstead. You know, you can have a, a kill. I mean, excuse me. Odysseus must have made a really nice bed, right? I mean, it's just over and over and over again. He's out on the sea. He's thinking about his bed that he made with his own two hands and all that other kind of stuff. And finally, that big night, he's there with Penelope and in the bed that he made with his own two hands, right? Okay. So it, it's it's. It's going to be, yes, it could be ornamental, okay? But number one would be the functionality, but that's the way that we would guide the nascent bed maker or the uh, nascent uh, shoemaker in that direction. The kid knows what to do. Look at it, you know? He, uh, we, we only had to show him three times, right? And he's picking it up, that kind of thing. It seems to me the same sort of pattern. Now, I want to go back to Thieves. Just a second. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I really, I ha I would have a hard time, and this is, um, I would really have a hard time believing that Socrates enters into dialectic with anyone who he doesn't think has some sort of truth in them. That's what he is trying to discover. So I'm not really sure that he's writing him off as a moron. Now you have more. You have you you going around reading apocryphal, you know, uh, Platonic dialogues for heaven's sake. S supposedly okay. apocryphal, okay. according to Schleiermacher, yeah. but I'm not right. sure Schleiermacher wrote that. Okay, right. you know, Branwood says that it's it's apocryphal, okay. but okay, but I, uh, certainly there's nothing in there that really that really um, uh, conflicts with anything that, that um, Socrates says any other place. It's Platonic. Yeah, Those agree. are Platonic uh, ideas, yeah, yeah, yeah. with the exception of I don't think. I, I would be I would be hard pressed to think that he actually believes the kid has no truth in him. The the myth of Anamnesis says that we've seen all that that uh, that education or learning is a process of recalling. Okay, he tells that myth three times. Okay, um, does he stand by it? Not in the Mino, he doesn't. He says, I don't know if that's really actually the truth. You know, but. But, but, and gives us one of those great moral teachings when he says, I don't know if I can know it, but I'm not going to stop trying. I'm always going to continue trying. I'm not, whether I can know it or not, I'm going to continue trying. Yeah, my, my quick response to many, all of those things, we could go all night, but then, and, and Brad's dying to get a question, would just be, it's, okay, so you, you know, you made your job easier by talking about the functionality of the shoe. Okay. Um, you can't get away without having the philosopher 
um, by answering the other part of your own definition, which you correctly got from Plato's teaching, which is that they're a good citizen, that they're just mm -hmm. as a member of the city. Well, like, is there a fun do you have a functional explanation for that? And I don't. I would say so, and um, and actually, you know, the, that talk about benefiting one city. I was reminded earlier today a couple of the discussions about service. In a lot of ways, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about citizens who are of service to their fellow citizens. So is a, is a city run by the shoemakers? Some of them. A just city? Well, now, listen, that's one, of their, that's one of Socrates' critiques, right? Yeah. Okay, the shoemaker stands up in assembly in the ecclesia and says how many ships should be built to go, you know, invade Sicily. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what does he know about it, right? Who, who knows okay? about it? Yeah. Well, the generals know. Do they? Okay, the experts, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll uh -huh. stick it out there, yeah. Well, not, not about invading Sicily. They shouldn't have gone to Syracuse. No. Wouldn't Socrates be the parallel to the shoemaker? Say what now? Yes. Wouldn't Socrates be the parallel to the shoemaker? That's, yes, that's precisely his teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Isn't that where you're deriving? He's listed off these virtues, and either we have to say he doesn't know them at all, or he's happened to name a bunch of things he doesn't know. So either he knows something about virtue and thus he's capable of teaching. The shoemaker. Yeah. Uh, he knows something about making shoes. Let's say that for, yeah. for yeah. first. Uh, yeah, I don't see the shoemaker as, as, as growing up in some, some sort of vacuum. Okay? I, the, he, he's, a, he's a member of a household. He's a member of a family. Um, even if he's a slave, he's a member of a household. Um, there are, you know, he, he is, um, if, if he's a free person, okay, not all shoemakers would have been free. The people who own the shoemaking businesses would have been free, with slaves under them, possibly. But I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be attending the ecclesia and be up on um, up on uh, current events. They 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 paid you to go to the ecclesia. You know, you need a quorum in there, and the four hundred five usually to conduct business, and they paid them to go, so people would go. But they did have, I mean, it was, I can't really imagine it was anything but a very robust exchange happening in the, in the ecclesias. The records that we have of them show that there were a lot of involved citizens. And I, okay, Anatus, um, the, the name uh, pops up an apology. He's one of the accusers of Socrates, along with Melitus. I can't remember the third one. But Anatus is the other one, which I've written a defense of, okay? Because as near as I can tell, Antus is a good citizen. So in the Mino, he said that passage I read, he's telling me that he wants to become a good citizen. Mino wants to become a good citizen. We want to know who to send him to. He's asking Anatus, and Anatus says, why didn't you tell him yourself? It's one of the best lines. I love the guy, okay? Because I don't like Socrates in that dialogue. He's a hard person to like in that, in that dialogue. He is unnecessarily ironic. He's unnecessarily pig-headed. Okay? Why don't you tell him yourself? And what's the, what's, the, what's the answer? The gentleman of Athens. Go hang out with good people. You'll, he'll be good. If he's willing to listen to him. So we unfortunately don't have that much time for questions, but I'm going to use presidential privilege to get one in at least, I think. It's an important one. Um, so Colin, you... You, 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 raise, you, you paint this whole picture of, of Plato uh, diagnosing that some people are fundamentally uneducable uh, and gave a very persuasive account of that and then said, as Christians, we openly 
have to reject that. And they have a pretty persuasive account of that. Um, it struck me, though, that theogy seemed to fit kind of the, the, the biblical model of the fool in Proverbs, who really is uh, described in these terms as kind of the uneducable person. And, and you know, Proverbs really does often frame things in that, like, the wise man is the one who is able to discern which people are just not worth his time because they are, they are fools and they're always going to be fools. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering, is there... Is there is, is Solomon are Solomon and Plato actually closer together here? And if so, um, how would your Christian critique of that engage the, with the category, the biblical category of the fool? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biblical category of the fool is is a description of all of us, and that's the point of it. You know, it's we're we're all fools at, at various points, and and we all sort of taste taste of this, and we all sort of have a longing for wisdom and maybe have a taste of that as well uh, at, at high points of our life. And, you know, part of discipleship with Christ is that, you know, we we are all more like theogies. And, and you know, Christ chooses us uh, in spite of it and is going to, has the actual ability to make us like him. There's a, there's a transformation of our nature which happens in the gospel and an engagement with Christ, which, which we, if you fundamentally believe that, I think you have to reject... Uh, now, yes, you you have to reject ultimately Plato's account of human nature, and or um, recognize that we have so severely edited it that we are not actually trying to do education in the Platonic model anymore. Well, isn't that perhaps admitting Plato is right? There are people who are uneducable, but as Christians we say they're not they're not educable, but they are convert until they are converted. Right, the task of education cannot over, cannot overcome that folly that is bound up in our hearts. Only the redeeming light of Christ. The, yeah, I mean, the, the, say that? the distinction is that uh, we do not think that there are some who are educable. Okay, and that's that's the distinction. Whereas Socrates is looking for those, and they so we're they, more pessimistic actually rather than more optimistic. I think. Well, I think we're both more pessimistic yes. and more optimistic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so following up on that, just kind of bring it into the practical realm. As an educator, you, you're always coming up against the question of, do I teach for the students who are most motivated to get them as far along as they can go, like looking at their potential and capacity? Or do I teach for kind of the lower end, and they're, maybe they're not motivated, maybe they don't have the innate talents, um, I can get them maybe from a 2 to a 3, 2 to a 4, or I can get these guys from a 5 to a 50, right? Mm -hmm. um, so with that component, just the practical, is, is Plato getting at something here that um, maybe uh, the task of the educator is one to identify those who he can take the furthest that will then end up being the best for others? And be able to say you can come along, but I know that you're either you don't have the character for it or you don't have the innate talent for it. Um, you're probably going to drop out of your own accord, right? That model, as opposed to like the no child left behind model, which is let's make sure that nobody. It's all about the theogenes, right? And it's not about the the excellent. Yeah, I, I guess because you're asking a practical question, I'll give a practical answer. Uh, which is, uh, I, what, 
what I'm trying to communicate in, in this paper is that you have to fundamentally reject, if you're an educator, an approach to students which is in any way uh, utilitarian or, or goal-oriented about moving them from, from here to there. And you rather have to look at them as God does, as beloved children who you love. And that's your job. And the rest is in God's hands. And the rest is in God's hands. Yeah, I'll let, all right, Clifford, and then, then we're going to... Well, except if, if, if you've got a classroom situation, and you've got a student who is a fool and wants to cause strife and is therefore impeding your ability to be able to reach those who are hungry, I would say you have a duty to... For that, for that student's own good, as well as for the good of the others, to hand him over to Satan, to use Paul's term, to separate. To let him say, look, you're not going to have a, a, an audience to, to demonstrate your, your foolhardiness in front of. You will sit in an empty room. Yeah, so I, and I would say that um, presuming you've used all of uh, whatever art and and you know trickery you've learned in your years of teaching, because there are, I mean, every classroom needs a fool uh, on on one level. But then there's a certain type who's you know unreformable; you can't get through to them, etc. It is actually an extension of seeing them as God sees them, and an extension of your own love as you know Christ in the role of teacher to them. That gets you to say it's time for a timeout, you know. Um, and so I don't, I don't see that as being uh, fundamentally opposed to to this. Whereas, you know, I just do think Socrates would just wander away. You know, like, I, I, why? Are, I don't. Why are you here? You know. So Theages is better than many of them. And so I, you know, this is where Al and I, I think, are on the same page because he sticks around. He's he's not really educable, but he's not going to leave Socrates. Yeah, he's I, not that bad. He's not the fool you're talking about. The rich young ruler, right, comes to Jesus. I've got my terms upon which I will be educated, and you will take them, Jesus, and you will not. And Jesus says, I will not. And he lets the man walk away. He doesn't go after and him. And he says, he looked at him, and he loved him. He loved him, yeah. But how did he express that? By letting him go. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But as, out of an extension of love for them, not out of a sense that, well, there's nothing that's going to happen with this one. And there's a there's a different relationship to the people in the Gospels, completely, <laughs> radically. And if you if you can't see it, then you don't understand Plato. And that's my my greatest fear of classical Christian education. Is it's fine read Plato, uh, but but you know I think there's a real danger in presuming that you understand him if you're simply reading him as a way in which he's easily syncretized with with the Christian tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Good. No. Plato cannot be the gospel. It can, it, it, there, it's, a, it's a completely irreconcilable. Um, and, and 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 the most glaring reason would be with what I wrote in that poem. Um, the um, yeah. In the, in the critique of poetry, Socrates specifically goes after the change of shape and form that the gods undergo in order to work their nefarious little, you know, assignations that they have, you know, they want to cheat on their wives and stuff like that, and they take the form of this animal or that animal and so forth. Well, a God is good. A God is good. A God is incapable of that kind of sin, okay, that kind of disorderly, um, that disorderly behavior, and, but, but was unable 
okay, to get his eye, uh, head around, he could not, he couldn't, couldn't imagine the idea that God would make himself something less. And if we don't have that, we're done, right? It can't be the gospel. God, God is, if this, this goes over into the time angst as well with this cosmology. God, the, the demiurge, cannot create the creatures, okay, because he himself is uncreated and perfect in, in that degree and is unable to create something that is, that is less than him. That's why he gives, he gives his secondary speech to the gods and they go out and make us, right? Okay, <laughs> he, he washes his hands of that. No, I'm not making that group. You do it, right? So they do that for diversity, okay? Um, uh, so creation will have that many more creatures and so forth. But no, um, God takes on human flesh. Sorry. No, he, no that, that would be, it's, a, it's a deal killer. Ne- never apologize for the incarnation now. Yeah. Right, okay. So should classical educators be Professor Slughorn or Professor McGonagall? Because it sounds like Socrates was more in the Slughorn camp collecting <laughs> people. Should yeah, not try to McGonagall was educating everyone in an egalitarian sense. I don't know the reference. Are you Harry Potter? I've never read Harry Potter. <laughs> That's a crying <laughs> shame, sir. So maybe I'll read it next year's comments. I know. Yeah. All right, and lots of great food for thought here. Let's thank 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 you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter at Vontes or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.